Welcome back to episode 15 of the South London Press podcast, uh, football podcast that should be. A rather quiet week in South London, no managerial sackings and wins uh, for three of our four clubs in their recent outings. Joined by my co-host and sports editor, Richard Corley. Rich, how's the week been? Yeah, it's been good, Ed. Like you say, we've had a few positive results, which um, we probably, as reflects the amount of managerial changes we've had, hasn't necessarily always been there. Hasn't always been the case this season, so yeah, that's that. That's been good in that regard. So, yeah, we're we're fit, we're firing, and we're we're ready for another another pod. It's been quite uh, not a, not an easy paper because no paper is ever easy, but it's been quite a straightforward one this week. There's been no sort of rush around on a on a Thursday to see what the back page is going to be. It's been quite a quiet one. Yeah, it's been a fairly straight sort of uh, straight decision of what to do. Um, obviously. Uh, the big story, perhaps, although it's still a few days away or a few a few days past rather now, is that um, Neil Harris returned as Millwall head coach or Millwall boss, if you want to call him that. He is still boss, uh, despite the different title and really good win at Southampton. So uh, that's the back page. It's talking about the fact that uh, Neil's now got his first home game at the Den on, on, on Saturday. Um, so that's, again, a, a notable moment for him. He's said in the paper he's going to have um, his wife, uh, uh, his uh, kids um, and sort of his, his mum and sister will be at the game. They've always been at his matches as a player as well. So, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. So that's the back page. There's a, there was a, a plug on the free version for Bits Inside, which was uh, Czech Decore's new contract, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a little bit. And obviously Nathan Jones getting a first win as Charlton manager um, at Derby County. Really good second half performance there by Charlton and a first win in 17 League One games to say that that was badly needed is an understatement. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna start with Charlton, actually. A heroic turnaround. They were 1-0 down, come back to claim a 2-1 a two, two, win uh, in the second half against promote, automatic promotion chasing Derby. As you mentioned, first league win in 17 and the first three points of the Nathan Jones era. You watched the game, Rich. How exactly did they do it? Yeah, I thought they were... I, I didn't think they were... Nathan Jones afterwards was quite critical of their first half performance and uh, the indications, I think he sort of intimated it himself. I think he got properly stuck into the players at half time. Um, I didn't think they were bad in the first half particularly. I mean, the... The, the ball that Cashin heads in at the near post, I think there's a block that stops him from being able to, him being marked from Nathaniel Mendes Lang's corner. But I thought that Chartwin, even the first half, the way they pressed and the energy they showed, I didn't think they made it easy for Derby. It was a, a game where, um, I think, to quote Jed Wallace at times, when they used to have ugly games in Millwall, the ball was, ball was probably asking for a paracetamol or two at half-time. <laughs> It was that it was that kind of game, um, but then second half, they just seemed even more aggressive, even more front foot. Um, Daniel Carnu, I thought, was terrific throughout. I mean, his his pace caused them worries. His pressing made him a, a real nuisance, 
And Dan Connie was still pressing the goalkeeper, Joe Wildsmith, in sort of deep into the game um, when Charlton led. And he actually forced the keeper to kind of slice the clearance out in the closing stages. I thought he was brilliant. I mean, he wins the penalty with his pace getting in the box. It's a nailed on penalty, which Alfie May scores. And that was a, an interesting move by Nathan Jones. We're going to hear from him a bit later on, on the pod. Um, asked him a few questions in his pre-Northampton press conference. And one of the things I asked Nathan Jones about was the changes he made. Because around about the 60-minute mark, he took off Panucci Camera um, and he took off Freddie Ladapo. He put on Chuksanike and Alfie May. Alfie May played as a 10 behind the front two. So they really went for it. And uh, Alfie May puts away the penalty. And you felt after that, it was only about 75 minutes into the game in terms of the second half that really Charlton had anything to defend. They, 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 you know, Derby just couldn't settle against them. And then it's a tremendous finish. I don't know if you've seen it, Ed, from Karoy Anderson. I think, yeah, I think he does so well. Yeah. I mean, there's bodies in front of him and Dan Carney's unlucky, but the keeper saves it. And then Karoy lifts it in. It's a, it's a lovely way to get your first league goal and a big, big three points because... It's one of those days where everything went right for them. You know, Port Vale were 2-0 up. Jaden Stockley, one of Charlton's former players, bagging a quick-fire double at the end to deny them three points. You obviously had Cheltenham failing to win. Those teams have got games in hand, a couple of games in hand below Charlton. But the way that Charlton have been playing these last four games, in particular under Nathan Jones, they look like a side that's going to pull, pull away from it. Yeah. I think one of the players who you were particularly impressed with from the game was was Conor Coventry. One of the big money signings in January, a real statement of intent, taking him away from where he looked like he was going to Sheffield Wednesday in the Championship. He's going to be a massive player for them under Nathan Jones, isn't he? Yeah. And again, I think with Nathan Jones, you've got to buy into him. That was what people were saying. And Nathan said something afterwards about the fact that he wanted Conor Coventry to do certain things. And he sort of praised Conor Coventry after the game in midweek that he'd gone away and kind of knuckled down and, and delivered what Nathan Jones wanted. I mean, I thought he was great, particularly in that second half. It was his ball through for Carnu that led to the penalty. He had most touches, most passes completed. Across the board, he's kind of, he was right up there on most of the metrics that you look at. And again, Nathan Jones talks about him uh, in the section of audio we'll hear a bit later on. But I think he's he's such an important player. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about George Dobson and Connor Coventry and who's the better defensive option in there. I mean, the one thing that um, I would say on George Dobson is um, I think you'd have to say that it now doesn't look like George Dobson has a long-term future at the football club. And the reason I say that is because when uh, George came back in under Nathan and the move to Hungary was blocked, I think people... You know, people people say stuff like, oh, you know, they can easily do a U-turn, they can easily do this, and he could still stay. The way that I understand it is that George Dobson's pre-contract is binding, and about the only way that that wouldn't be the case is if a club then comes in and, and pays a transfer fee for him and effectively buys him back. And I don't think, as it stands, that that is something that Charlton are going to be doing. And... I'm not saying they should, but I just don't think it's something that... I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't. I'm just saying I don't think it's necessarily going to be there. So certainly from what we saw from Connor Coventry the other day, we know he's a good player. He's played very well at this level before. He is obviously going to be, if he keeps doing what he did the other day for Nathan Jones, he's going to be right in there in terms of selection. So, mm. But the other thing I'd say about Nathan is 
to get the kind of level of energy and running he wants, he does change things around. If you look at his teams, there's players that aren't in the matchday squad and then they come back in and start. And then, you know, he's not worried about making big decisions, whether that be taking Alfie May out. You know, Alfie May scored his 21st goal of the season um, in midweek. But Alfie isn't necessarily a guaranteed starter right now. But, um, you know, Nathan... Uh, doesn't call them substitutes. He calls players game changers that come off the come off the bench. And I guess what he's trying to make the point is that it doesn't really matter whether you start or finish the game. It's all about the greater good of a team getting the results. Yeah, you're talking there about Dobson and, and his contract situation. I think it'd be very rare to find a player who who'd signed a pre-contract agreement for for the summer and then to to break away from it or to move to a different club or to to can make a complete U-turn and stay with the club he's already at. I think you find once you've signed it, it is it's pretty binding that that is where you're going to be playing your football next season. Yeah, I think the thing is, is that sometimes people just think that it means, oh, that's what you'd like to do. But I think, as we say, it doesn't work that way. It is a permanent deal. It's locked in and it would need another club to step in and, and change that. And, you know, I just, I just don't think it's particularly realistic. And I, I'm not saying either that I mean, the indications are is that George Dobson's been made a really good offer by by, by the team out there, and I, I don't know whether Charlton could even have got to those financial those financial numbers. Maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. But I just don't think it's going it, to. Life will move on, I think, yeah. uh, at the moment, and there's a lot of players who are waiting to see whether they're going to get deals. I mean, the indications I've had is that obviously great to win the game when you start to look at things and you think, well, what will happen with Terrell Thomas? He's out of contract. He captained the team on uh, at Derby, played very well as, as, as part of that back three. But um, I think the feeling is at the moment is one win. It doesn't need to suddenly be a clamour to offer players deals. And so I think this is going to run a bit longer. And we know obviously that Nathan Jones has already said the squad's too big. So, players that are coming out of contract are an easy way of bringing the numbers down rather than players that are contracted and their financial terms they're on might actually be a problem for other clubs to... Well, we've seen it all the time, haven't we, with other players yeah. that have, have gone out and clubs are only paying part of their wages. So that's going to be interesting because there are a number of players that are up in the summer. I think it feels like it's probably the, the perfect time for a little bit of a maybe rebuild. I know they've they've brought in some good players in the summer and, and this time around, but th this upcoming summer with the certain players who are out of contract, obviously losing the captain as well, he's going to be leaving. It, it's um, under Nathan Jones and what he's trying to build there. It feels like it could be quite a big summer for Charlton on the horizon. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it, well, it's definitely, there's definitely more optimism now. I mean, Nathan Jones has definitely sort of uh, connected with the fans as well. And I think that's going to be important as he looks to build things. You know, uh, we probably haven't seen that kind of unity. There was there was probably, it was probably there a little bit under Dean Holden at the start, I think. Um, and it wasn't under Michael Appleton. Um, and I don't necessarily think it really was under Ben Garner um, for, for most of it. So um, I think it's a big summer. For, for them. I think some of the stuff they've done, you know, now, I mean, if you look at the fact they've got Dan Carnu and they've got Kavoy Anderson on long-term contracts, that looks two really sensible bits of business. I mean, the indications I've had is that there are Premier League teams and there are championship teams that are scouting Charlton games. And the yeah. reason they will be there is to look at young players that are under the age of 20 
than playing regular football. Um, Charlton won't want to sell, I don't think. Uh, and I'm and again, I'm not saying they will sell, but all it, eventually there comes a point sometimes when this these, these kind of things come to a head if a club comes in with what is very good money. But I mean, I, I for one would say that both of those players, I would imagine, will look at it, will have seen what Nathan Jones has done at Luton, where he took them through the divisions. And I think that there's a good chance if you stick with Charlton under Nathan Jones, you could be going somewhere pretty special anyway. So um, I'd like to think that any of those young players would would definitely stay next year if, if they got promoted. Then obviously they're in the championship, if buts and maybes, mm-hmm. but are suddenly closer. So I don't think there's any need to do anything at the moment, that's for sure. Right. Talking there, when you're talking about the, the fact that teams are coming to watch Charleston because you know these, these youngsters are getting regular minutes. I think Palace's recruitment strategy in the academy, when they're signing these these players for a, a couple hundred grand, like Adler Nascimento, is that you know, managers whose jobs are on the line often aren't going to put players in who are youngsters unless they absolutely trust them and think they can do the job. So maybe teams in the Premier League come and take a punt on them. But with the likes of Carnu and, and Alisson, they seem to be really thriving under Nathan Jones. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, Karoy Anderson in particular, well, both players, I mean, Dan, Dan Carnu was out at South End, um, got recalled because of the amount of injuries they had. And Karoy, um I mean, I think we were talking at one stage back in January, wondering whether Karoy and Nathan Asimway would both maybe go out on loan somewhere. So yeah. it goes to show the way that Nathan Jones has liked what they... I think the, the, the word that comes back on Dan Carno and Karoy is that they're both really good young men who want to listen and learn. And I think, if you, like we said before, if you want to buy into what Nathan Jones does, he'll obviously trust you. And that's exactly what he's done with both of them. Yeah, uh, we've had a couple of questions this week, Rich. Lou CAFC, apologies, um, wants to know how Dobson fits into this system now with, with how well Connor Coventry did the other night, especially with the back five. There's only room for one real CDM. I suppose that applies to Panuche Camera and, and Terry Taylor as well when he comes back and, and, and more. So it's quite a congested area of the pitch for Charleston. Yeah, they're probably a little bit overstocked in that area, really, at the moment. Um, I mean, in terms of Dobson and um, and and Coventry, I think with the amount of games they've got, you know, they they play Saturday, they play at Cheltenham. Um, they are sort of beginning to um, the fixture intensity is there, and I think what you'll find is that George Dobson will get game time anyway. Perhaps Connor Coventry won't be starting all the time, so I think I think that will mix around a bit. I mean, Terry Taylor's not really been back in it. Um, so whether he needs to do a bit more to force his way in. Panucci Camera can play slightly further advanced, so he's he's an option slightly further up the pitch. You know, he can play as the most advanced of the uh of the midfielders. So I yeah. think that probably gives him more scope to to feature. Um but definitely they've got a few options there to play with. I mean George Dobson, another reason why he potentially might not have been involved the other day was that um, he's on nine yellow cards. Obviously, Lloyd Jones got a tenth yellow card um, on Saturday against Portsmouth, so he's now serving a two-game ban. So I wonder whether they wanted to make sure that there wasn't a crossover of another player being out for a couple of games. So yeah. if George Dobson does come back into the fold on Saturday, well, after that game, Lloyd Jones is back available. I know they don't play the same position at all, but it just means you're not losing another one of your senior men or senior players. So I think... I think I think George Dobson will still get minutes, like definitely between now and the end of the season. 
Yeah, uh, Lou's also asked about Harry Eisted and him becoming the number one under Nathan Jones. He wonders whether Maynard Brewer might get a chance to to regain that spot at some stage this season, or is it firmly Eisted's spot to lose now? I think it's probably Eisted's spot to lose. Um, I mean, obviously, it's difficult to work out whether with some of the sort of criticisms of Ashley Maynard Brewer, it's difficult to know whether that was that was probably sort of before. Um, Nathan Jones came in and so I think the fact that Nathan Jones went with Eistead, he I think he said when when I asked him about it at one stage that it was just that he knows Harry Eistead from Luton and that that was the reason he made the change but I mean I don't think goal, when we talk about rotation goalkeepers the only area I don't think they would they, they will look to rotate too much and so I think if they keep being defensively solid and they were they were very. I thought they were defensively very good in the second half at Derby. I don't really sort of see that that would change. So you'd like to, you probably would think that Eistead's got the gloves and will be in goal, unless he suddenly has a drop off in form. Yeah, uh, we've also had a question about the impacts. You know, with this Nathan Jones turnaround, is it is it purely down to Nathan Jones, or how big of impact has Chucks and Ike also made to the to this squad and coming back? I think you were mentioning to me earlier that you know, Nathan Jones does have quite a pretty fit and healthy squad to choose from at this this minute in time. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's one of the things that I think it's a valid point actually. I mean, there was a lot of talk that under Michael Appleton that the team was kind of uh around about the kind of points return you needed for the playoffs when they had all those players fit. Um or they had Chucks and EK fit and Miles Lebon was available. So it's definitely, definitely helped that Nathan Jones has had those players back. Um but I would also say that the way that he has got them playing, as mentioned in my match report, they're just horrible to play against. You can't, yeah. it reminds me of his Luton teams. Like, you used to watch his Luton teams and te- opposition, the way they set up, they just, if you're playing Luton or you're playing Charlton, it looks very similar under Nathan Jones in the sense that you don't really get any measure of control in the game. It's, it's it, you know, you're, it's frantic when you're in possession. And then Charlton, when they get the ball, will look to kind of hit you. And that can be quite direct at times, but it's really, really good tactics. So I I do think it's undoubtedly helped Nathan Jones that he's had the January window signings available to him. Chooks, Chooks is, I mean, Chooks was, I mean, Chooks was really unlucky on Tuesday. Uh, corner came in. I'm not sure if Gillespie got the flick on it. It was a derby head, but... Chooks from close range, his header comes back off the post and he almost scores with literally his first touch. So having him available is massive. But I'd also add in that the the impact the young lads have given, like Karoy and Dan Carnu, has been really big as well. And you'd question whether, particularly say Dan, Dan Carnu is an example, I'm not necessarily sure that uh, Michael Appleton would have got the same amount of, you know, same amount out of him. Yeah. Um, Northampton on Saturday, tomorrow, when you're listening to the pod. Um, a massive game, again, obviously with Reading's point deduction that, that allowed Charlton to jump above them in the League One table. Um, they can put some real sort of touching distance between themselves and that bottom four, couldn't they, this weekend? Yeah, they definitely could. I mean, Northampton, bit of a mixed bag. They're, well, I say a bit of a mixed bag. Eight points from their last six games. But they are unbeaten in three um, winning two of those, including last time out against Burton. So, um, 
they, they, you know, they're, they're not a bad side at all. Um, and I mean, I'm just going to have a quick look and see what their home record's like. Not had a chance to look at that yet, where they are. In the they're, very much mid, they're very much mid-table. 14 wins, 6 draws, 14 defeats. I mean, c- yeah. considering when I watched them last season in League 2, I don't think I wasn't blown away with, with what they've done. But um looks like they've settled really quite well into, into League 1 life. Yeah, 11th, 11th for home form, 28 points from their, from their 17 games. Obviously, Charlton down is 17th for home form. Um, but, I mean, this the thing as well is it's going to give them a massive boost, Charlton. They hadn't actually... We, we talk about the fact they hadn't won away in... They hadn't won a game in 16 matches. They actually hadn't won um, a league away game since Wigan, um, which was way back. Um, so... Um, uh, you know, and, and the other thing that I found surprising, unless I've got it wrong, is I, I don't think they've, um, I don't think Charlton have won back-to-back league matches. Um, might have been a way that I'm looking at this. I, I need to remember what the stat was. I can't remember exactly what I said it was, but it's back end of April. Um, wow, okay. It just hasn't been that consistency of of getting away wins or it might have been back-to-back league wins. I'd need to have another look at my stats. I've, I've done that without them having them in front of me, but um, the way they played at Derby, I mean, they've got they've got three in a row on the road, which is pretty harsh, you know. After after this one as well, they go to they go to Cheltenham on the Tuesday. But the way that they performed at Derby against a side that are, you know, so strong, um, they've got to have huge huge confidence that they could go there and, and just repeat the feat, basically. Nathan, uh, just first of all, in terms of the celebrations at the end of the game. I think the fans really enjoy the passion that you've shown so far. I just wondered, you know, obviously there's just a natural reaction from you, isn't it, after a, a big performance and you obviously wanted to connect with the fans afterwards? Yeah, that's what it is, really. It's emotion. You know, it's a very emotional time the games are and, you know, we, we, we prepare so well and work so hard that sometimes it's, it's a release at the right time and the show really meant to us because... I'm as big a Charlton fan as anyone now because my life depends on it. So that's why you know, we show that. But I also want them to show that. I also want them to see that I'm right. You know, I'm 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 right here with them in, in terms of I feel the emotion of every game, the highs, the lows. I understand the sacrifice they have to make with work, with financial stuff, and I want to make sure that that they know I'm in there with them. I'm guessing for some fans there was relief was one of the overriding emotions after the team won that first game. But is that something that you felt personally? Because obviously the team has played well for a period now, was excellent, particularly in the second half. So is relief the right word to use or not? It's the relief. Every single winner manager gets is, is, I think, is a relief because it's there's so much emotion leading into the game, the preparation, the, you know, the anticipation of the game. And then when you get the positive result, yes, there's euphoria, that's there's... You know, there's joy and all those things, but the the overriding thing is always relief that your work has come to fruition, and then you can work sanely going to the next game. So I think there it is. I understand the relief in this case because you think, well, we finally got a win. But as long as performance levels are there, we're we're going to pick up wins. It's just maintaining those performance levels. I think you said afterwards in one of your interviews with BBC London that there are a couple of players you thought could be superstars in the team. The people you'd naturally look at is some of the young guns like Daniel Carner and Croy Anderson, who obviously, again, were so impressive in midweek. Are they two particularly you think the ceiling is really high for? I think we have a lot, a lot of players here with potential to be very, very good. And superstars is, is a big word in terms of, I don't want to use it flippantly, but 
you know, when you apply yourself, you can be anything. I'm a big believer you can be anything you want. If you if you apply yourself, you work hard, you have the right focus, then you have the right structure, then you have people that want to guide you and help you and give you help. You take that on board and you go again. Um, I, I believe people can be anything they want to be and I've come here, I don't just want to just build a football club. I, I'd like to change people's lives here as well. In terms of Karoy and Dan Carno, it seems like they've both got the at- the attitude that they want to learn and they're hungry to learn. I wonder what other attributes they've got on a playing side, Nathan, that makes you makes them so so good to work with. Well, I can probably say that for all the academy graduates here, so first and foremost, they've they've all got the attitude. This is a, a conveyor belt of, of talent here, and and Charlton's always produced young, hungry players with great attitudes and the reason they've got great attitudes a lot of them come from varying varying backgrounds but when they come into Charlton they get taught very very well and they were here with, with Paul Hart and with and with Steve Avery and I got to know that Steve obviously has continued that throughout the years and we all know that they've got fantastic sort of attitudes everyone in the academy and everyone who comes through but what they have here as well is real attributes to be top footballers athleticism pace power um, technique a desire you know, sometimes they look you in the eye, and these are the greatest sense of the word that they they want to do something like, and that's that's the that's the best thing. You touched on Connor Coventry as well after the game. He obviously came back into the side, really sort of stepped to the fore. Probably sort of mirrored the second half performance, didn't he? Where he he really sort of dominated. Uh, most touches, most passes, I think, completed. I think he covered, he was top on so many of the metrics, probably that that we can view our side of things. How did you sort of assess his performance? Yeah, I thought he was excellent. I think he's been really good. I watched, obviously, the Northampton game where he played. I thought he was outstanding. Um, I thought he was brilliant the other night. And just really, uh, you know, we demanded from him, wanted something from him. And he's taken that on board. Um, you know, he's a fantastic technician, um, a good athlete, and someone that we believe can, can have a really good career. Just finally, in terms of the changes you made in the second half... You obviously, again, you, they were positive, weren't they, the changes when you brought on Alfie and you brought on Chooks. You played, played Alfie sort of further forward as well and it worked, it worked so well. It was a really positive change. You obviously were so determined to, to get your just rewards from the match. Well, I think we'll always go out to win games and we'll always make positive changes. And some, some will be some will be, tough, some will be necessary, but some will be premeditated to, to give us impetus because you don't call them subs, we call them game changers. So... We want people to come on and change the game, take the game away from opposition, get the game back, or give us that impetus to, to go on and win the game. And, and and that's why we use them. So everyone has their role to play. Yeah, we have 11 that start, but those who know they're on the bench know they have a role to play. They're not substitutes, so they're not starting. Their role is to come on and to give us uh, another little turbo boost, if you like. And that's 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 what they do. And yeah, we, we like being positive. If you look at the bench, there's not many. We obviously have to put defenders on the benches for to cover up cover all bases. But you know, it, it, it's a positive bench, and it's just sad there's only seven on the bench because I think the top two levels is there's nine, and that gives you even more opportunity to, to be positive. So, so that's the only downside. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pod, and we're going to talk about Crystal Palace. Um, We'll start, first of all, with a, a bit of news this week that Czech Decore has signed a, a new contract. And it's something that, although when it broke, literally nobody had reported it was actually about to be confirmed. Uh, it was something that you touched on, Ed, um, sort of 
I think it was January time, wasn't it, that you had a story saying that the club were set to open talks with Czech Decore about a new deal? Yeah, so I think it was 12th of January, something along those lines, when, when we first reported it. We had it on the back page. Um, Palace were going to offer Czech Decore an improved deal due to the fact that there was serious interest from, from Liverpool in the summer. They obviously signed um, Endo, but also wanted Moises Caicedo, who ended up at Chelsea. So... Um, the CDM market was quite hotly contested in the summer. Czech Decore had a, a wonderful first campaign with Crystal Palace, um, fitted really well into the Premier League, um, solid week in, week out. There was a bit under Pat Vieira where it looked like he was being forced to do the job of two players and uh, and maybe at times was was overrun slightly. But as soon as Roy Hodgson came in, he was he was bossing games in the midfield and, and looked like a £70 million player. And I think that was... What we reported was the asking price that Crystal Palace slapped on Czech Decore when Liverpool made their initial inquiry. Nothing came of it. Um, he stayed a Crystal Palace player, started the season and then suffered that really cruel Achilles injury in the 2-1 defeat at Luton that sort of set the wheels in motion for what turned out to be a sort of disastrous run for, for Roy Hodgson and Crystal Palace to take them where they are now under Oliver Glasner. But the deal for everyone involved makes sense. Czech Decore won't be going anywhere in the summer. Um, due to the fact he's thought it's really unlikely he plays another game of football for Crystal Palace this season. He's obviously targeting a return before the end of the campaign, but to suffer that magnitude of, of Achilles tendon injury and then to, to try and come back to playing football is, is a really tough ask. So, And Palace have obviously filled the void in midfield with Adam Wharton and, and Jefferson Lerma. So I think the best course of action would be to let him run run the rest of the season to to try and get back to full fitness and then hit the ground running at the start of next campaign. Um, you'd like to assume there's probably a release clause in there, given the fact there's been interest from from big teams. We, we can't say that for certain, but with the likes of Eze and Elise, there are release clauses. So it, it fits the mould of what Crystal Palace are doing. And, and that's what Palace are going to have to do this summer. They're going to have to sell one of one or two of their, their big money assets to to fund a rebuild under Oliver Glasner. Um, but in terms of Decore, he, he was a huge miss when he suffered that injury. Um, Hodgson mentioned it a few times that he was the one who sort of knitted the play all together, whether he was sitting in front of the back four or joining in with the attack. Palace have sold that a little bit with Adam Wharton, but when Decore does come back, to have a midfield three of Jefferson Lerma, Decore and Wharton is is quite a mouth-watering prospect. So um, great news for the football club, great news for Decore. And um, as soon as he gets back to full fitness and is, can be part, a part of this team, it's going to really help push it on. This is probably quite a tricky question to answer, but I wondered if you had a thought on who you thought was most likely would potentially leave this summer out of like Elise as a gay. I mean, I guess the difficulty we're trying to judge that is you, it's dependent on, it's club dependent, isn't it, on who actually comes in for players? Yeah. The most obvious one is is Mark Gahey. Um, two years left to go on his deal come the summer. Just had minor knee surgery to clear up a, an issue. Obviously he had the hyperextended knee injury. He, he picked up against Brighton and that's ruled him out for the past few weeks has had surgery to clear it up ahead of the Euros in the summer. An England international, a world-class centre-back at Premier League level. Um, Palace need to cash in on on some of them because if they really want to attack this model and, and try and be like a Brighton and, and push into the Europa League spots, then then they need to, to, to create a turnover of players to start trying to build and implement into this squad. I think... I think Gahey and possibly Eze are the two you're looking at and saying those those two will be the 
the two to depart, if any, as they obviously reaching that sort of age now, 25, I think he is, 26 maybe, I think potentially 25, but I need to double check that where, where you're looking at it and think they're probably ready for the next steps in their career. Um, they're the two biggest saleable assets at the moment. Obviously, Michael Elise is, but with the hamstring luck he's had this season, um, clubs might be slightly cautious of, of taking a gamble on him. He hasn't he hasn't had a pre-season with Crystal Palace since coming in from, from Reading. Um, when he is fit and available, I, I'd say the best youngster in the Premier League. I know he's 22, but nine goal contributions in 10 games in, in a Roy Hodgson team that really struggled to create just tells you how good he is now. So... Um, in the summer, Palace will have to sell two or three. And I think it will be Eze and, and Gehi, the ones who, who do the part. In terms of team use um, ahead of Spurs, we obviously were talking before Oliver Glasner's press conference on, on, on Friday, which would be too late to record after, basically. Uh, but um, what are we kind of expecting to be hearing about options for, for the game at, at, at Tottenham? I don't think the squad's going to be hugely different. I, I'd expect it to be the same eleven that's taken to the past two games. Um, played really well up at Everton, a, a tough game given the circumstances. Uh, Glasner obviously watched on from the stands and then in, in the game against Burnley, a real professional second half performance against 10 men sort of blew them away. I can't imagine that Eze comes straight back into the starting lineup. I think you saw last time he returned from, a, from an injury, the hamstring injury he suffered. Uh, uh, sorry, it was it was it was actually uh, slight. Uh, what was it exactly that he had last time out when he picked up against Luton? Um, yeah, can't remember exactly what muscle. No, what anyway, it, it was. It was something he had, and last time he came back, the game against Bryson, he gave away a sloppy clearance that led to their equaliser, and then the game against the following game against Chelsea gave away a penalty. He wasn't quite at his hundred percent best. So it wouldn't surprise me if having Ebrich Eze off the bench would be Oliver Glasner's sort of tactical approach to the game at Spurs. Palace obviously haven't won there in the Premier League era, so it's going to be a, a really difficult, uh, a really uh, difficult task against a side who are fought, slightly fallen off the boil in recent weeks, but still boast a world-class plethora of options. Um, Will Hughes isn't a million miles away. Uh, I think he's been training slightly this week, but whether he's going to be fit and available for for Saturday, not too sure. Um, but apart from that, obviously we reported today that Jesmond Ratsaki is going to be out for six to eight weeks, but that was one anyway that who, who wasn't going to be an option. So I can't think of too many players returning apart from Eze, same back three. don't think the goalkeeper decision has, has yet fallen upon Glasner to make a choice whether he goes with Henderson or Johnson. I think Johnson will stay first choice for now and possession will be nine-tenths of the law. So... Yeah, I can't think of that there's going to be too much change going into Saturday. Now, looking at the Burnley game, um, this was, you know, the first chance to see a team under Oliver Glasner. Um, shout out, first of all, to my boy Daniel Munoz. Seven points in FPL for me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, played the 90 minutes, clean sheet, four points as well. So that's two plus four equals six. And he also got a bonus point. So 0.1% owned in the game now. And I think there were actually some people that had him, but out of 11 million players, I went rogue and it paid off. But obviously that's not the big talking point, I guess. Although moving forward, Munoz, um, particularly when you've got your other players back, he could be a pretty good offensive outlet for you guys, couldn't he? 
Yeah, I, I, he's he's settled in so well. I mean, you can just the fact he got caught offside. I can't remember the last time I saw a right back at Crystal Palace get caught offside being that high up the pitch. He is um he he has been excellent since arriving, really fitted in really well, um taking that right wing back spot into his own and he's effectively playing as a right midfielder at times. And when Palace do come up against the likes of Burnley or or Luton the week after Luton are going to need to win that now since since Everton got some points back and obviously I still expect Everton and, and Forest to get another points deduction but Luton needs to start picking up wins so they're going to have to attack that Palace game. I'd see Daniel Munoz as a, as a really good FPL asset. Um, I had Chris Richards on my bench for the game against Burnley. I think he picked up fourteen points uh, so that was that was another tactical masterclass from me. Um, they're not my finest moment, but yeah, Daniel Munoz, if, if you're looking at FPL assets, I think he'd be the one. Tyreek Mitchell as well got forward really, really well against Burnley. Um, yeah. Had a really... Go on. I was going to say, I was listening to one of the... Obviously, you, people who listen to this will know I'm properly into my FPL. And I was listening to one of the, the guys, Planet FPL, and they were talking about Tyreek Mitchell's heat map. And um, James on there was basically saying that he doesn't think that probably... Tyreek Mitchell's heat map has ever been that high up a pitch before. So you sort of touched on it there. It sounds like both both sides were really pushed on, albeit obviously Burnley were down to 10 men for a lot of the game. Yeah, effectively, Palace are playing with those fullbacks as wingers at times, with the two just behind Mateta, who's sort of the battering ram up top. They're almost inverted forwards. And I think that's when Elise and Eze do come back. And if they're both playing in this system under Glasner, who knows? Because Elise is obviously out until until April, how long that's going to take him to rebuild, whether Palace think if we're safe by if they're safe by then to to attack this next season really as, as his target. Who knows? I mean it was a horrible hamstring injury he suffered against Brighton. Um but when those two do come back and if they're both on the pitch at the same time, one of Munoz or or Mitchell, I'd, I'd back to be getting goals or assists at the same time because Mitchell had a great shot saved by um, Trafford on Saturday in the first half, where he's picked the ball up and turned and swivelled. It was um, it was really really impressive. Both of them that like, they could be really key players under under Oliver Glass, and I think I'm going to ask him about it in the press conference tomorrow. A couple of questions that have come in, uh, David uh, on t- on 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 Twitter or X. David two eight seven one seven five three five three is his handle. Uh, he has asked, "What is a Nathan Ferguson latest?" Well, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think Nathan Ferguson will, will play football again for for Crystal Palace. It's been a dis- dis- disastrous sort of injury spell throughout his whole Crystal Palace career. You really feel for feel for him because to have this number of recurring injuries and different injuries, I mean, he picked it up. Just as it looked like he was getting back to some sort of fitness, he picked up a horrible injury in that game against Monaco for the under-21 side. He actually picked it up and played on. Not sure whether he knew he'd done it or what, or psychologically he'd just gone through it. But uh, we obviously reported that he needed surgery on that or was likely to need surgery on it because of how severe it was. So, I mean, even the deal they handed him in the summer, it was a one-year sort of extension just to see whether they could get this this asset who was so highly rated coming through at West Brom, a real sort of one of the first players along with Eze where you're looking at it, thinking Crystal Palace is starting to rebuild here after letting all of the the sort of the elder statesmen in the squad, Cahill, Scott Dan, Patrick Van Anholt leave. Nathan Ferguson, who I think was recommended by Alan Pardew from his time at West Brom, was was going to be one of these sort of key players going forward. He's obviously an England youth international, very highly rated, and it's just been a horrendous run of, of injury luck for him. Um just every time it looks like he's getting closer, he suffers something. And it's funny because 
Palace's next game against Spurs. It's just eight minutes of senior football he's played for Crystal Palace, and that was at Spurs. So I'd be shocked if Crystal, if Nathan Ferguson does make a, a, another senior appearance during his Crystal Palace career. It wouldn't surprise me to see him move on in the, in the summer as a free transfer. Okay. Other questions from Peter Howard, zero uh, one. Uh, how will Glasner cope and adapt with all the injuries? And how do you think he'll use the three-week break? And he's put in brackets the Newcastle fixture rearranged. Well, in terms of how he he copes, I think it's going to be very much the same for 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 now. Um, the starting eleven up against Everton and against Burnley at home haven't done anything to show that they don't deserve to start the continuous sort of games coming up, especially these two crucial ones. If Palace get a result against. Spurs, whether that's a draw and then beat Luton, I think that's them pretty much safe in the Premier League. So these two games are really crucial. Um, in terms of that three-week break, I think you've already seen in the game against Burnley that he started to implement little changes, whether that's from set pieces. The first set piece was a short corner routine that, that landed at the feet of Jefferson Lerma that he just put over the crossbar. But even the attacking subs early on. Palace were at nil-nil when he brought on Mateus Francher and, and Ahamada. He really went for it. Um, Francher is is raw, but there's some really good raw ingredients there for him to build upon for next season. I think slightly strange decision not to lay the ball off when he was attacking in the penalty area, but luckily for him, he, he went down under pressure and Mateta picked, <laughs> Mateta picked up the football actually and Francher tried to fight him, not fight him literally, but fight him to take the penalty, but Mateta pulled rank and it was his anyway because he took the, the previous one and scored. So um, th- there are ways to get around this injury crisis. Francher and Ahamada are going to be going to be key to that. It's a shame for Ratsaki, the another hamstring injury he picked up because I think he would have got serious minutes in the Premier League this season with how unlucky Palace have been with Eze and Elise. Um, you saw you saw on Saturday, I think Glasner's going to face the same problem that Hodgson faced against the likes of Spurs. And, and when Palace do play these teams who aren't sort of banged to rights already like Burnley are, the squad squad depth isn't there. He had to call upon four academy players to fill his bench with Luke Plange, Caden Rodney, David Ozo and Franco Ume all being on the bench. These are highly rated players, especially in the case of Umer and and David Ozo. But it's uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that they're quite ready for the Premier League. I think both of them should probably be out on loan next next season at some stage, especially with Czech Decoro coming back in. That could allow David Ozo to go out and finally get his first senior loan. Um, what else would I expect him to work on in, in the three-week break? Maybe something to do with the, the, the wing-backs and how he really wants them to, to get implemented. They're obviously going to be key to this system, as we've already mentioned. So to work on Tyreek Mitchell's more attacking prowess could be could be really important for that, that three-week break. I'm Zian Fleming, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pods. We're going to move on to Millwall. Uh, Rich, you were at St Mary's on Saturday uh, Brilliant 2-1 away win and Neil Harris's first game back in charge of the football club. What, what did you make of it? Yeah, it was uh, one of those away days where, you know, it's a, diff- it's a tricky one because prior to the match, um, obviously I tend to switch between Charlton and Millwall. I can't be in two places at once. So when Charlton were playing Portsmouth at home, uh, top against sort of a side in relegation danger, you're thinking that's a big game normally in any given week. But then when Neil Harris came in at Millwall, his first game is is back as back in charge, is down at Southampton, you sort of think, okay, we'll go there. That's where that's where I need to be. And you obviously then hope that the result kind of works, that you haven't because obviously if if a team loses, then 
things are a bit more down. It means that the stuff you're writing for the website probably doesn't get read as much. And it's just not as good a story, really. So um, it all worked out beautifully. It was a really, at times, gritty performance by Millwall. I think you look at the team he named, and it was industry, 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 with a bit more industry and then some more industry on top of that. And you had the situation where you had, you know, if you look at the the midfield, you had Ryan Longman, George Savile, Billy Mitchell and George Honeyman, all players that, uh, particularly in the cases of Mitchell, Honeyman and Longman, obviously very high energy can really get around the pitch. I mean, George Savile's no slouch, but he's a little bit older, but he'll use his experience and you just know that he'll be able to defensively do the job that's required. And, um, I mean, it was it was a game that, I mean, looking at it, actually, Southampton had six big chances in the game um, to Millwall's one. But Millwall, I thought, defended so well. The effort levels were massively increased. Now, whether that was just because of the selection that Neil Harris made compared to maybe what Joe Edwards would have done, that could be part of it. But it really seemed like the players had kind of bought into Neil Harris's appointment. Um, and it helped that they got an early goal through Jaffet Tanganga, his first senior goal um, of his career. Um, Shea Adams... It's not a great goal that Millwall can see, but almost instantly Zian Fleming gets a converts from the penalty spot and they win the game. But looking at it, touches in the opposition box. Southampton had 42. Uh, Millwall had nine. It was There were some moments where they had to defend well and, and Matty Sarkic as well made a very good save late on from, from Adam Armstrong as well, which, you know, it really was good down low to his right to sort of scoop the ball away. It was it was a really good performance, um, without necessarily being all about what they did offensively. But I think a word on the fans as well. About two thousand eight hundred there, they were absolutely pumped up for it from the word go. And um, there was a monk chant in the second half that uh, went on probably for a couple of minutes at least. Um, and the scenes at the end were great. George Savile pushed Neil Harris forward. Uh, because he wanted him to get his own moment with the fans after the game. And then uh, Chopper quite quickly was kind of pointing back at the players and saying they're the ones that deserve the credit because they, they got the result. So big win, vital as well when you look at the other results because they didn't go Millwall's way at the weekend either, largely. Yeah. Uh, you spoke there about Sarkic. What what was Russell Martin's problem with, with the goalkeeper in particular where he, where he refused the handshake? Was that due to time wasting or was it just due to the fact of the incredible save? I don't know, actually. I mean, um, when I tried to click on the story that this local Southampton press had done, it said you had to be registered to read it. And I was quite lazy. I'm quite lazy. If you want me to register for something, I'm not going to be interested in that. So I don't know know what he'd done to irk irk Russell Martin. I mean, Russell Martin's comments post-match, I think some of the Millwall fans were quick to to respond when I posted up his post-match comments about we dominated the game and, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, the situation for Martin now is he's probably feeling a bit of pressure. That was back-to-back, I think, league defeats for Southampton. It looks quite costly in the automatic promotion chase. He he wasn't in the best of moods when he came in after the game. So, um, yeah, in terms of what he did, I don't know. I mean, Millwall did did run down the clock. I can't remember how many minutes. I think I said it was. was I think it was eight minutes stoppage time or something at the end of the game. it's infuriating when you're the home team uh, and it's not your team that's winning, but 
it's all part and parcel of it. I mean, you look at the you look at the options that Southampton had to bring off the bench, and they had some some really good players to bring on. Um, I thought, um, you know, the change as well to Tom Bradshaw in the second half to try and have a bit more legs up front and kind of just chase stuff. But they, it was such a good defensive performance. Jaffa Tanganga, I think 14 clearances in the game, the most of any player, including a there was, I think, a, at least one goal line clearance he made. He got booked, he scored a goal, he got injured, he got hurt after... He got a whack from Bazunu as he, he met George Savile's free kick to loop it in. So um, he had he had a, he had a proper game at the weekend, Jaffa Tanganga. Yeah, schooling in the Championship after coming through in the Premier League is it's an interesting sort of turn of of his career, isn't it? Uh, I wanted to ask you about Zian Fleming. I think that was his tenth Championship goal contribution of the season. What what have you made of of his second season overall? Because not as many goal contributions as there were last season, but but still popping up with crucial moments for Millwall. Yeah, I think he's having a good. I think he's having a, a, a pretty good season. I'd, I'd said to him last week actually that um, he said he wasn't satisfied with his sort of return in terms of assists and goals. But when you look at Millwall offensively, they haven't been particularly prolific. A lot of the time, they've been in the Championship um, and they've been there now for an extended period of time. And I think. Um, with Zian, I think you look at his goal return and assist this season, it's not bad for a team that was struggling right down the wrong end of the table. But when I said that to him, he didn't put it that way. He said he likes he likes a challenge and he always thinks he should be getting more. But again at the weekend it was a it was a pressure penalty really to to try and put away and he did it he did it very calmly. I just feel if Millwall could get him into more positions to hurt teams, I think he would undoubtedly have a better goal return. I mean, last season he had so many shots and this season I, I don't know where he'd rate in the championship, but he'll be well down that. He doesn't mm. seem to get into the, be in the position to affect things as much. And that could change now because one of the things that Neil Harris did at the weekend was he went back to a back four, predominantly under Chopper when he's been manager. There have been occasions he hasn't, but he does like, uh, you know, four at the back. And uh, on Saturday, Zian Fleming was sort of a 10. You know, he was behind the main striker. And I think that's where he's probably more likely to be able to get those moments to, to, to kind of affect it in the final third. So I think he can possibly, I think he can boost his numbers. But, uh, you know, last season was always going to be difficult for him to follow. I think it was 15 goals last season. That's a, that's a great first season. But, I mean, if you look at his assists and goals over his Millwall career so far, He's returning fairly regularly, so I still I still think he's doing a good job. Yeah, uh, mentioned how tight it is down the bottom of the championship. I'm just having a look now, and I think anywhere from Sheffield Wednesday in 23rd to, to Plymouth in 15th will be looking over their shoulder or looking up the table to see who they can try and catch at the moment. It is a real, real scrap down the bottom at the moment. Um, a really, really crucial game, and Neil Harris's first return back to the den since taking over this Saturday. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's made it a bit, bit more interesting is obviously QPR have picked up. Sheffield Wednesday looked like they were cut adrift, but they've got a good, had a good run of form. They're only three points off the drop zone. I mean, Stoke are now down there, and I think, um, I didn't read it, but John Percy did some longer read in the Telegraph, I think, about the kind of decline of Stoke and it being something that's been kind of, it's been coming almost. So, I mean, Stoke are absolutely now, you know, right in it, bottom three after the latest round of results. Um, the thing that it'd be interesting to see how loud it is at the den on 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 Saturday. 
I think the last time Neil Harris managed there was a was a defeat to QPR as Millwall manager. The last time he managed there, defeat to QPR in September 2019, and um, the fans were singing his name before the game and after the uh, before, during, and after the game at Southampton. I think Neil will demand that they get behind the players, and they've got to get the home form right. They've got six home games left, and only Rotherham have taken fewer points than Millwall at home. It's just mm. got to change. It's got to change. Um, because just a few wins there will make a, a huge amount of difference to them. And um, a new start under Chopper, I, ju- I just think like that kind of work rate and everything else, the hustle and bustle that he demands, I think it will be there again at the weekend. In terms of the paper this week, I spoke to Danny McNamara. You, you mentioned to me that you were particularly impressed with his performance at Southampton. Um, what did he have to tell you? Yeah, I like I like Danny. I think that some of the fans, he, he has got some of the critics, but I think as a defender, he likes to defend. Um, I thought early on he made a pretty robust challenge, like a bit of a sort of laying down a marker, and it got the fans kind of, you know, got a reaction from the away support. They like they like what they saw. He played on the left of the back four, which he hasn't played before. They was switched to that at in the second half against Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, looking at what, you know, Danny had to say in the paper, he thinks, and I, you know, I think it backs it up, that winning at Southampton shows that there shouldn't really be any fear of whoever you face, particularly when clubs at the top as well have, have got pressure on them. I think there's suggestions over the weekend that Valerian Ishmael is, is under pressure at Watford, that they're considering a change. So, again, I think that, that's got to play into uh, Millwall's hands. Um, but I thought Danny, he he said to me that getting that win is just a little bit of weight off of the shoulders of the Millwall players. And George Savile had said on BBC London that he didn't name names, but he said that a couple of players had come to him prior to Southampton and said that they really fancied Millwall to nick a result there. And funnily enough, when I said that to Danny McNamara, he said, I don't mind saying it was me and Billy Mitchell that had gone up to Sav independently of each other and said the same thing. Um, I think Danny's probably pleased to see Neil back. Neil was the manager when he had, Neil gave him his professional contract. Danny was on the bench at Wigan on the final day of the, I think, 2018-19 season it would have been. He didn't come on. Billy Mitchell got his debut that day. I think George Alexander might have come on as well off the top of my head. Um, but... Um, Danny after that had sort of loans and stuff to kind of build up in Scotland and elsewhere. But I don't, I think he, I think he's pleased that Neil Harris is there. I I did ask him about Joe Edwards and he spoke well of Joe Edwards, but he said he didn't play as much as he would have liked under him. So, you know, you know what Neil Harris is going to want. He's going to want players that are blood and thunder and will give their all. And I think Danny will always do that. And that's why, that's why I like him as a player. I think he's, I think I think sometimes he gets a bit of unfair criticism, and so um, yeah, he was he was in good spirits. I think the mood seems to be good. I mean, um, I think you're going to take me into a question at the moment. We talk about mood being good. I think there's someone Phil Clark's asked a question, hasn't he, about about Chopper? He has. He wants to know the difference between the the old Neil and the, and the new Neil. If you've noticed one in in the first week or so of him being back. Yeah, I think he he asked in the the Neil at the end of his first reign and this one and. Um, I mean, Neil was always fine to deal with. He's great to deal with. So I haven't really noticed any big difference. Um, I think, you know, he's obviously come back with 
more coaching experience under his belt. He's dealt with more media up and down the country, including Cardiff, where there is a, a bit of a goldfish bowl element to it. But, um, I mean, Neil's been very relaxed since he's been back. But then I think I said to you before we started recording, you'd expect that because he's just come back to the club he loves as head coach. That's great for Neil. Um, and it's been good for Millwall so far. And then he wins his first game at Southampton. So there hasn't been a negative step yet for Neil. And obviously he's not going to win every single game. But I mean, media-wise, Neil is is normally pretty good to deal with. I've I've never had any complaints. So I don't think there's really been a huge difference. Um, I'm sure if I could exactly cast my mind back to when <clears throat> before Neil left the, you know, the Luton game in 2019, I'm sure perhaps you could probably tell there was a bit more pressure on his shoulders then. But he seems he seems relaxed with it at the moment. Um, I don't know. I think it's difficult to say. I don't know what you'd say, but the fact he inherited a team that looked like they were in trouble, whatever happens, he's probably got this season to kind of work it out, hasn't he? However it ends. And then the following season is where you judge, judge him because it's kind of a very short impact job this season. Yeah, if when when Roy Hodgson came back to Crystal Palace last season, if Roy Hodgson took Crystal Palace down in those final ten games, it wouldn't have been through a lack of trying. I don't think it, it would have tarnished his his sort of th- thought process between the the Crystal Palace fans. Um, maybe you could say a bit different for what happened this season. I don't think his legacy has been quite handled the way it probably could have been, but that's by the by. Um, I think yeah, it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because he's what what looks like it's clear from the outside is that Neil Harris has come in and immediately given the football club a lift. Obviously, winning helps in football. Collecting three points at a team looking at automatic promotion to the Premier League helps. But it's just that connection. I think it's a bit similar to the way you were talking about with with Charlton and their previous managers. That having that Millwall connection, having that Charlton connection, having that Palace connection, instantly it just builds that bridge back back up, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think top-level managers sometimes... I think Premier League... I was thinking about this the other day. Premier League, you probably don't need it as much. You don't have that, do you? Like As an example, you know, Marco Silva, obviously Fulham fans sing about him being a genius and after we win at Man United, he is. I mean, like, you know, we, he's, he's done tremendously. But I do think at Premier League level, you don't often tend to see clubs necessarily appoint managers that have got a history is probably something that predominantly, although it wasn't the case with Roy, he did have a connection with Crystal Palace. Um, but you don't tend to see it so much in the Premier League, do you? It's it's more sort of championship and League One, League Two. You see someone go in. And it, and it is important. Undoubtedly, it's important. I'm Jay Cooper, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part four of the South London Press Football Pod. Now on to AFC Wimbledon. And uh, an AFC Wimbledon side that... Uh, sort of the form is a bit of a worry now, isn't it? And I'm, I'm just looking at it, you know, a one nil defeat to Doncaster last time out. Um, not one in four, three defeats, three of those without scoring a goal, uh, all those defeats without scoring a goal. They're 19th in the form guide, five points from their last six matches. Yeah, it's, it's not been a, a great February for AFC Wimbledon and Johnny Jackson. Um it was always going to be tough, always going to be a gelling period when you lose the best player in, in the league, arguably, in Ali Alhamadi. Um, Josh Kelly's come in, and I think I mentioned on, on last week's pod, I really like what, what he does and what he offers to the team. He just needs that that one to go in to really kickstart his career. But 
it looked like up at Doncaster on Saturday, the fans sort of turned a little bit again, singing you don't know what you're doing and stuff like that to the, to the management staff. Um, don't think they were particularly enamoured with the the substitutions either. We read, I read Dave Hunt Jackson's takeaways. Um, he, obviously, he went to the game, covered it for us. Um, I think you mentioned in there that the fans weren't particularly happy about it. Uh, but it was always going to be really, really tough. I think you know, with the likes of Josh Neuer fell out, Jake Reeves was out for a period, the injury crisis as well. I mean, the fact that you spend... I mean, the club broke their club record to sign Joe Lewis from Stockport on a permanent deal and Ryan Johnson had been excellent. Those two alongside each other formed a real base. And now they've lost them for a prolonged period. I don't think they're either a million miles away. I think the, the initial suggestion with both of them was that they'd be out for around a month. So you're looking at two to three weeks maybe in terms of getting them back up to full fitness. So they shouldn't be too far away. But And then you bring in Kofi Barmer from Crystal Palace who has an excellent excellent start to his AFC Wimbledon career and he suffers another injury. So um, I think at the moment when when it rains, it pours for, for AFC Wimbledon in terms of, of their squad depth. Um, I think Aaron Sasu is, 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 is one in contention where you look at him and think that he's done well when, when he's been playing for for them in recent weeks, but he hasn't been in and around it either. Ryan McLean's still there. Um, he was on loan at Kidderminster, but they have options, but it's just at the moment about finding a tune out of the squad at, at Johnny Jackson's disposal. And you reported earlier this week, Kofi Barmer won't be available for the game against Milton Keynes at the weekend either. No. So he, from what, from what I understand, he's targeting a, a return against Grimsby the following Tuesday. Um, so it looks like it will be another, Another week of Lee Brown and, and Alex Pierce at the back, which you know, I, 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 know, I saw a suggestion on social media that the fans aren't too happy about that and they wanted Ethan Sutcliffe to be recalled. But I'm not sure I 100% see the thought process of recalling Ethan Sutcliffe for one game and then I'm not too sure how many more times he can go out alone. I think I'm not sure if it matters too much with players under under the age of 20, but you, know, you don't want to keep pulling this this boy back and forth from from loan spells just to play him in one game every now and then. Although that League Two game would be really crucial for him, it would also be really harsh for him then to sit out the rest of the season on the bench. So Kofi Barmer isn't a million miles away either, as I said. So um, Lee Brown's done an excellent job deputising at centre-back. I know we've spoken to him for this week's paper, but um, it's just alongside Alex Pierce, they don't naturally at the ages of 33 and 35 don't have the sort of natural pace at the moment to, to keep up if a, if a wing is seriously attacking them. Uh, you, you mentioned about the fact we sp- you spoke to Lee Brown this week and he was kind of talking about the game this weekend. Obviously, it's a kind of, I don't want to use the word rivalry because we know that emotions run so high in terms of the history um, of, the, of the club they're facing or the lack of history perhaps is more apt to say. But I um, Lee Brown was pretty clear that he wanted to build up the significance of this match after what happened in the reverse fixture um, earlier in the season. Yeah, he labelled their performance at, in Buckinghamshire back in, in January as, as embarrassing. So, I mean, Wimbledon with Wimbledon with 3-0 down after 12-minute spell uh, in the first half. Um, and then it just went from bad to worse. Uh, Omani Little obviously pulled one back, but two second half red cards for Hussein Byler and, and Paul Kalambai sort of really compounded how bad the defeat was. Um, sort of since then, Wimbledon's form, I mean, Wimbledon's form throughout the season has been a, a little bit inconsistent. They've started the season absolutely skyrocketing and with real, real sort of early contenders for promotion to League One. But ever since then, it's just gone a bit up and down. I think losing Ali Alhamadi and Omar Bagel to the Asia Cup derailed it. 
then January derailed it, and now it's another gelling period. And it just feels like that's been the sort of hallmark of Johnny Jackson's sort of career so far at AFC Wimbledon management career. It's been every time it looks like they're putting a good run together, when they get to that line of of the playoff spots, they just falter a little bit. Um, and then they get things go against them, and it's been really tough. But yeah, Lee Brown didn't want to play down how big this game is. They they know that they need to put on a result. They know that Milton Keynes are coming to Plough Lane and and Wimbledon aren't going to be allowed to to let them embarrass them like they did up at Stadium MK. We're now going to bring an end to episode 15 of the South London Press Football Pod. Rich, you are at Millwall this weekend. Yep, I am indeed. And you yeah. are heading over to North London. Um, to experience the... the the uh, the three course meal that Tottenham Hotspur put on before the game it is a uh, is a wonderful experience <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one uh, at least we yeah. didn't uh, at least we didn't uh, abuse any town or city in the UK this week that was no, the goal although thing. although Louis Mendes listened to the pod last week who obviously is a regular for us in terms of covering Charlton games my little trooper Louis Mendes and uh, he said about that he had had a night out in Doncaster. Uh, I can't remember if he said it was good or bad, but he, he had had a night out there. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll have to maybe do like an away day where we have a night out somewhere. I don't know. We'll have to just see how it goes. In terms of the pod, we might, we might potentially uh, mix it up next week. We won't say too much at the moment, but we might have a, a guest a guest sort of one that we do next week that might be a little bit different. Uh, might might come out a little bit earlier in the week as well. Um, and that would be more of a, a sort of chat with them. But, Fingers crossed we can get that locked down and, and that might be out next week as well. 